irrespective. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop chorus. Well, I'm I'm excited for this conversation for so Me many different too. reasons. Me too. Me too. Man, so I'm here with Marianne Hitt, um, who does I guess is, is it now called Beyond Carbon? No, it's Beyond Coal. What's 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 the what's the title now? Well, it's still Beyond Coal, but it doesn't really capture all the work that we're doing because we're really to the name of your podcast, trying to move to 100% clean energy. So we're really trying to move beyond coal and gas to 100% clean energy. Well, I love it. Well, I know you, and and I think, and I just want to tell you off the jump, as we would say, that I think that you are one of my favorite people out there. Okay, I'm a little speechless. <laughs> I'm a little speechless because you are also one of my favorite people. And um, just... The energy, the positivity, the vision, the compassion that you bring to this work is honestly, I look up to you for that. And so to hear those words from you just really means a lot to me. No, well, thank you. No, I, I, I mean, well, thank you as well. well I, I mean, I mean it so much because I think that I've just seen the work you've done and I know that you bring a passion. I'm going to get all into that about where you came from, from over there in East Tennessee to where you are now in, in West Virginia, uh, to what you've done to lift up the voices. And I just think that it's it's marvelous. So let's actually start with there. Let's actually start with, with who is Marianne Hitt? Well, I did grow up in East Tennessee. Uh, claim to fame is that Dolly Parton went to my high school. So that gives you gives That's you a right. flavor. Well, what's your favorite? What you gotta stop there? What, what's your favorite Dolly Parton song? Oh, I love nine to five. That's my karaoke song. Okay. All <laughs> right. Oh, okay. It's a song okay. Some of the working people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course Jolene, you know, that's who can't who can't love Jolene the karaoke <laughs> song. Um and grew up in the Smoky Mountains, which is a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. And always cared about the outdoors. Uh, my dad, who recently passed away, was the chief scientist for the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So we spent lots of time outside. And I miss him, but I carry on his love of, of the natural world and uh, love of people um, with me to this day. And was working to as an environmental advocate later for an organization called Appalachian Voices uh, to try to protect and defend this region that I loved. And ultimately that led me to the Sierra Club and having the opportunity to do work at, all over the country and the world. Uh, but it all started in East Tennessee in those mountains with my family and my my love of that place and, um, and, and the realization that places like that need defenders, they need protectors that they, you know, when my dad was chief scientist in the Smokies, it was the era of acid rain and it was killing the trees in the Smoky Mountains, and he stood up to the big polluters, which were actually the big coal-fired power plants, believe it or not. And uh, he got some pressure to, to quiet down, and he, he wouldn't do it. And so I also learned from him at a young age that these, these beautiful places uh, and the people who live in them need people to, to speak up on their behalf. Mm. No, thank you for that. And because I know you and, and we're friends, I actually want to do something a little different. I actually, you, you mentioned your dad. I actually want to bring him into the conversation. Tell us, you mentioned your dad's background, but tell us something else to bring him in. Cause I know that 
he recently passed, and as you know, you are in my prayers and in my condolences. And but I think this is a great way that we can now put him put him on the wax, as we say. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna put him here in the podcast. So tell us, folks, about about uh, you know his, his name and 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 something that really made him special to you. Well, my dad's name was John Piney, and uh, he he was hilarious. He was always the funniest person in the room. And, um, he was really present with the natural world around him. Um, so he would always be the person to bring you out to look at the moon or bring you out to look at some, you know, the dew sparkling on a tree. But here's a little story about my dad. So when I got married, we got married, my husband and I on a little piece of property in the Smoky Mountains, right down the road from where I grew up. And there was a river there. And instead of out the rest of the wedding party walked down this little gravel path to the place where we got married under these beautiful trees. But instead of us walking, we decided we would float down the river and surprise mm. everyone. So everybody's looking down the gravel path for me to show up in my fancy dress. And here come my dad and I down the river with him paddling me down the river and, and then oh. got out of the canoe. And he that was classic my dad, because he got to sort of play a trick on people, which he loved. And because it was a really special moment in the natural world with his daughter. And, and he really raised my sister and I to believe we could do anything that the boys could do and uh, let us, you know, made us change our own oil and learn how to drive a tractor and all that good stuff. So he was a lot of fun and, uh, and he loved us very much. No, thank you. For that. He seems very, he seems very special. And thank you for sharing that. Yep. And, and, that, and I, I think I, you know, it's it's interesting that he was fighting coal plants all those years ago, and now here I am doing the same thing. And I don't didn't ever really set out to follow in his footsteps so closely, but it turns out that I did. No, you well, you've done a good job at that. I want to tell you, 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 <laughs> if anything, you. I don't know how good you can row that boat down the stream, but you could definitely fight a few coal fire <laughs> power plants. <laughs> well, I can row a boat down the stream, decent. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, let's get to that. I actually want to get to that aspect to break it down. Um, you've been doing this work for some time. And I want to, for people who don't understand um, just the, what the horrific nature behind coal-fired power plants, I really want to just get into that. So let's talk about just why are coal plants so bad? Particularly, I really want to get into... Um, some some wonky stuff here. I think it's important. I want to get into the sulfur dioxide aspect. I want to get into um, the mercury, um, the co-ash. I want to get into those things that are polluting. And this is the backdrop because we know that not only are folks who are in the uh, Appalachians who are affected, and we want to get into that as well, we also know that 68% of Black people um, live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant. And so we're all, this is one that we're all suffering. It doesn't matter where you're from. You're in the mountains or you're in the urban communities. We are all suffering. So I really want to break down, give us that little bit of that 101 right now on just why uh, coal plants are so destructive um, to our community. Absolutely. Well, what brought me into... <clears throat> learning about coal-fired power plants was this horrible type of mining, coal mining called mountaintop removal, where they would blow up the entire top of a mountain and dump it into the valley. And 
not only destroy these beautiful mountains that I love, but make people very sick uh, and really ruin the economic lifeblood of these Appalachian communities in West Virginia and Kentucky. And so I started paying attention to coal plants because that's where all the coal was going from this horrible form of mining. But then came to learn 10 years ago in this country, we were getting half of our electricity from coal. And in that time, the coal plants were the single biggest source of sulfur dioxide pollution, which is linked to heart attacks and asthma attacks. Mm -hmm. If you breathe in that air pollution or strokes, you're all sorts of health problems that lots of us suffer from. For all, lots of people may have in fact have had a heart attack triggered by pollution from a coal plant and, and, mm. and never knew it. So they were our single biggest source of that pollution a decade ago. They were also our biggest source of mercury pollution and mercury comes out of the smokestacks, it falls into the water, it gets into the fish. And then when we eat those fish, especially if you're pregnant and you go to the doctor, the doctor will tell you to not eat certain kinds of seafood because it has these high mercury levels. And that mercury can cause developmental problems for those children when they're born for the rest of their lives, like delays in walking and talking and lower IQ and things like that. So coal plants are our single biggest source of sulfur dioxide pollution, single biggest source of mercury pollution. They were also our single biggest source of toxic water pollution. And so that's a couple of, uh, <clears throat> couple of things to know about coal plants. After they make the electricity, there's all this stuff that's left over from burning the coal, just like the ash in a fireplace. Mm -hmm. And there's this stuff called coal ash. And when I started working on this issue, it was the single, uh, it, was, it was the single or the second, I'm sorry, the second biggest volume of solid waste in our country after municipal garbage. So there's like all the trash all of us create. And then the next biggest source of waste was this huge volumes of this coal ash, which they just dumped in open pits in the ground and is full of heavy metals and toxic things that are nasty and make you sick. And then finally, they also release all this water back out into streams and rivers and lakes and coal plants were our single biggest source of toxic water pollution in the United States. And that doesn't even get into the climate impacts. Mm. A decade ago, coal plants were our single biggest source of carbon dioxide pollution that's warming our planet and causing the climate crisis. So across the board, really damaging to public health, to our families, to our communities and the climate. Wow. No, thank you for that. I just want to make sure I got it right. I know folks right now are taking notes and I just want to make sure my notes are going along with their notes. So one, the sulfur dioxide with the air pollution, correct? Absolutely. And, yep. and then you have the, the water pollution and the mercury. Now you mentioned that because we know we've seen that particularly for black mothers. Uh, one of the um, millennials um, for Flint um, I believe has been fighting against the lead and also with the mercury. And we, we know the mercury rules were, were rolled back during the administration and then they're trying to put forth. But you said that when that mercury comes out, it isn't captured. And then it goes, literally, also goes into the air. And then that particular matter goes, the fish eat that, and then we eat the fish. That's right. And you are also right that when President Obama came into office, there were either no regulations or standards or very weak ones for most of these pollutants. And so President Obama actually put in place standards for a lot of these uh, forms of pollution. The Obama administration put the first ever standards for coal-fired power plant mercury pollution in place and required every coal plant to reduce its mercury pollution by 90%. And it made a huge difference. Every coal plant in the country uh, complied with the standard and we had a big drop in our mercury levels. Now, Trump, of course, 
rolled that back. But by the time he did that, uh, it, it was a little too little too late, but he was just going down the checklist of the of the corporate polluters, you know, and everything that they wanted him to do. But um, but it is possible to to deal with this pollution. And President Obama uh, did some of that work. And now we're hoping that President Biden will will pick up where he left off because Trump definitely tried to roll it back. And you mentioned 68 percent of uh, black Americans living within 30 miles of a coal plant. I mean, their communities of color were disproportionately affected by, by this pollution, they were hit hardest by this pollution for decades. And so we owe it, uh, we owe it to those communities to just clean these up once and for all. No, definitely. And we know that those communities have been the, the black community, but we also know the indigenous community, like the Navajo Nation, actually, I know, actually, didn't they shut down the, 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 the coal plant on their reservation? The Navajo generating station, uh, the smokestacks came down at the end of 2020. Come on now. Yes, they did. They came down at the end of 2020. And, you know, that it's it's uh, the economic challenges when you retire these coal plants are are real. And for the Navajo Nation, I think they're, you know, they relied on both the the, the mine that fed the plant and the plant itself for, for jobs and income. And so so that's the, the next step uh, there. And in a lot of these places is make sure that there's a fair and a just economic transition for these plants. But it was also a very big source of pollution. Um for sure, the Navajo Generating Station. Actually, Mary, break that down. I think people think may not understand that. So this coal-fired power plant was was on the Navajo Nation, on the reservation, and it was causing pollution that we just discussed from sulfur dioxide, mercury, list goes on. And it was, in essence, hurting and killing our indigenous sisters and brothers. But in that, they were trying to get rid of it. They were also working there because that was also the way that they can make their money now, which creates a dilemma. And what you're saying that that dilemma now we create a just transition, just transition. So when a lot of our climate friends just want to close down a plant, they're forgetting the nuances that go on in our community. So kind of break down those nuances for our for our listeners right now. Absolutely. So a couple of things to think about. You know, as we transition off of a fossil fuel economy to a clean energy economy, uh, places like West Virginia, where I live, have deep economic ties to fossil fuels, to coal. And, um, you know, we can either create a transition that brings everybody along, um, or we can just pull out the rug from under folks and they're left behind. And I think, you know, we as a, as a country, we have all benefited from the electricity that these coal plants provided when we've turned on our lights. Um, we have all benefited from the sacrifices people made, you know, coal miners sacrificing their health and their clean water and sometimes even their lives to mine the coal that powered the nation. And so as we transition off of coal and ultimately oil and gas, which we have to do, I think we owe a debt to those communities. Um, I think that the best way we can honor the sacrifice that they made is to help build an economy in those places that can sustain the generations to come. And uh, and I think we can do that. I mean, I think especially with, with President Biden in office, if we have the kind of leadership and the resources that the federal government has at its disposal, we can actually make this a transition that doesn't leave folks behind. But um, if we're not careful, folks will get left behind. And then that causes a lot of pain in communities and a lot of resistance to climate action and a lot of backlash to progress. And so, um, so we, we need to 
keep that front and center as we make this transition. No, that's that's exciting. Now, I know the Navajo Nation, didn't they, didn't they transition to get some community solar there? And then they started selling that solar to, to L.A. and other spots like that. I, heard, I know there's some good news there as well. Well, on the Navajo Nation, uh, another another place where we worked closely was with the Moapa Band of Paiutes um, in Nevada. They were living next to a coal plant called Reed Gardner that was dumping coal ash right onto their community, just blowing mm. off of these big piles. The people were getting sick. And so they, uh, we worked with them to both retire that coal plant and then get the country's first tribally owned solar project uh, permitted and constructed. And then that power is now being sold to LA, which has made a commitment to 100% clean energy. And so there are those stories and uh, of, of places that are not, not just moving away from coal, but seeing that bridge to 100% clean energy. And Definitely, uh, we have some new leadership from the Department of Energy um, uh, in the, the Tribal Energy Office from Wilea um, uh, that I think we have some great new opportunities and some great new leaders there who can hopefully help bring more of those opportunities to um, to our indigenous uh, brothers and sisters. No, and we hopefully will have uh, uh, Deb Holland uh, will be in with the interior so we can really Absolutely. come full circle. Definitely. On- on these things. Um, let me ask you a question because I, I know what Sierra club, one of the, one of the things I actually went out there to do out in Detroit and I visited the, the marathon refinery and it was um, also just dealing with the amount of pollution that was blown off of that, which is similar to what we're talking about now with, with, with the coal fire power plants and that aspect. Um, one of the things I remember Sierra club did was that they had asked everyone in that community, if you knew somebody who had died from cancer or had cancer, put a put a white cross in your in your front in your front yard. Um, almost that entire community of black people put little white crosses in their front yards. Um, it was just it's it, it's mind blowing. But then my question, and I know you've done this, so you've talked about this from, you know, the aspects of the indigenous community and the Navajo Nation and the black community and, and even poor white communities up in the Appalachian Mountains. You're, you're trying to connect the dots. But why isn't other white environments doing the same thing? Why is it when we have situations like genocide for black and brown and red people, they seem to be eerily silent on this issue? Well, let me first, since you mentioned Detroit, give a shout out to Rhonda Anderson and Justin Onwenu, who are both uh, in our Sierra Club family in Detroit and our great environmental justice leaders in the community, um, who we are very, very fortunate to have uh, working on our team at the Sierra Club, doing some great work there. And, you know, I I want to be honest, I think even the Sierra Club has had uh, has had to do a lot of growing in the in the around environmental justice, around racial justice, around understanding that racial justice is the racial justice crisis is actually at the heart of the climate crisis. And I think, um, I think there are a couple of, a couple of things that I, I guess I'll just speak from my, my personal experience um, that I think as white environmentalists, we want to think that there is sort of a technology solution or a policy solution um, that we can just 
pick up this football and like run it over the finish line and get a touchdown real fast, <laughs> you know, because we feel the urgency of the climate crisis. And so we think if we could just get a price on carbon, or if we could just get this cap and trade system put in place, or if we could just get, get this, this policy over the finish line, um, that we kind of have blinders around, around that being the job that's in front of us. And I think one of the things we've learned over the past especially a couple of years, especially with the, frankly, there's a racial justice reckoning happening in the big environmental groups since the death of, since the murder of George Floyd. And I think one of the things that we have all kind of woken up to is that people have to be put first in these policies and especially communities of color need to be first in these policies. And that actually there's like not enough, like the white environmentalists can't actually get this over the finish line by ourselves. We can't actually, uh, you know, put our heads together in our fluorescent lit conference rooms and actually win this because communities have to see themselves at the center of it and communities of color need to be at the center of it. And I think that is changing, but I think we have, um, we had sort of have had sort of this kind of technocratic uh, blinders on uh, that I think are coming off for a lot of groups. Um, but I think it's, you know, for some it's, it's long overdue. And for some folks, I feel they feel like it's too little too late, but I think that they're, we definitely have been reckoning with that inside of the Sierra club. No. And, and I'm, and I'm thankful for that reckoning. And I, and I definitely um, appreciate particularly um, with some of the the founders and history, particularly as it goes back to the, the conservation movement aspects of this, um, but I guess I wanted to, that one part about the reckoning, I mean, it seems to me, and I, and I, I, I hear you, and I, I think, well, one, we know that climate justice is racial justice, and racial justice is climate justice. We understand that, and we understand that if we, if particularly, particularly for black and brown and red and indigenous people, that if we um, lift up their, their oppression. It will look at the oppression for everyone. So we know this. But the thing that gets me is this. I'm afraid, you know, Mary, to be honest, that the reckoning that we saw last year, um, I'm not sure that was the reckoning that, I don't know how long standing at reckoning will be. Because, you know, I can go back for the reckoning, can go back to many times in this country when we've seen black and brown and indigenous people suffering at the hand of state-sponsored violence. We can go back literally from the climate perspective and see the, the birth of the environmental justice movement in Warren County, North Carolina, back in the 80s. It didn't seem to get going how it should. We, we should have seen that with Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane uh, Maria in Puerto Rico. Uh, we should have seen it in Harvey or Superstorm Sandy uh, I mean, I can go down the list of just reckonings, I guess. So, I mean, we can go back to the beginning from when enslaved people came to this country, I guess. I mean, or when uh, our native sister brothers had their land stolen. I mean, I guess I just don't, I just don't know what reckoning, I guess, I guess I just puzzle because the reckoning you're talking about, I get it from Breonna Taylor and George Floyd in 2020, but that's almost, that's a little bit insulting from a standpoint for, if that's the reckoning, then what happened before, What happened when black folk and brown folk and red folk was dying all around you for all these years? How, how can that be the reckoning? 
And what can we do to move forward from that in that process? And that's exactly right. I mean, when I say it's it's too little, too late for some folks, that's exactly what I mean. And I think as white environmentalists, we just have to sit with that and look inside of ourselves and um, and kind of own up to that, frankly, own up to the fact that we didn't listen well enough before. And we went back to business as usual before. And things have to be different. Um, and if they're not, then we will we will have more of these reckonings. And so I think that's uh, as as a white person in the environmental movement myself, that's the work that I have been trying to do. I think we also need to open up. We need we need new leadership, right? We need new leadership from people of color in even these big environmental organizations, which I recognize don't always feel that safe or that welcoming for for people of color. And we have really been trying to grapple with that at the Sierra Club too, to kind of shift our culture so that it feels feels more welcoming to folks because I think we need new leadership. We need new partnerships and alliances um, with uh, with groups that we may not have worked with before. And we need to think about how we're doing the work and to not, not necessarily um, settle for the quick and the easy solution, uh, but, but really dig deep and, and make sure that the solutions that we're putting forward actually are putting people at the center and actually are addressing this long legacy of environmental injustice. And if they're not, then we need to, to do better. So, so yeah, I, I completely think it's uh, totally warranted to be out of patience <laughs> with, no, the, with well. the big white environmental groups. I mean, I think it's, it's totally fair. And I think <laughs> that we, uh, I, I have, I have uh, deep, deep hopes and, and commitments within myself that we will shift some things, but I think the, I think the, um, uh, the proof will be in sort of how how we take advantage of these next range of opportunities in the Biden administration as one example, you know, are those going to be solutions that put people at the center and actually address environmental injustice? Or are they going to be sort of another round of, of solutions that, that fail to do that? And those are the kind of opportunities that we have together to, to try to do some things that learn from that history, uh, which which is which is really important. No, thank you so much, Mary. I, I actually, I, I appreciate you. And I really hope people are listening to what you're saying. I really hope from environmentalists are really taken into stock. I think that's the only way. And just to be to be clear, um, this moment is a moment where we can allow for, um, you know, when we say, for instance, when people say Black Lives Matter, um, you know, that's the the bottom of the conversation, right? This the matter. But, you know, to be honest, in this situation, we have folks who are dying. We have, and they're dying horrible deaths. They're dying from the standpoint that they're, they're freezing in Texas. They're drowning in the Gulf Coast. Um, their land is being taken in the Arctic. Um, they're, they're giving lead in Memphis and, and Flint, you know. I mean, it's just horrible. They're intensely putting these coal-fired power plants in their neighborhoods. They're cutting off transportation justice. They're putting highways. I mean, the list is on. It's it's genocide. And we, it can't be a situation where we just take that. You know, we've I've had some amazing guests um, from uh, Leah Thomas to Wawa, even our own our own assistant producer here on the coolest show, uh, Destiny, uh, has her group, uh, Generation Green. They have a, they have a term I actually want to mention to you that has, that's called um, environmental liberation. When you hear that, how does that hit you? It uplifts me. It uplifts me. 
um, that term, environmental liberation. And uh, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is um, it's two things. It's being liberated from a polluted, toxic environment and being liberated into a clean, healthy environment where we can all thrive and connect to the natural world um, and where people are free to achieve their greatest potential. You know, and I think about all the work that we've done in the Beyond Coal campaign, you know, over the course of a decade, we were the Sierra Club working with over 300 partner organizations. Uh, we secured the retirement of two thirds of the coal plants in the United States. And those were coal plants that were giving people heart attacks and strokes and asthma and polluting their drinking water. Uh, cancer rates were higher around those plants. And it's not solving the whole problem by any means, uh, especially in some of these communities. Two of the coal plants were in Detroit and they were huge sources of pollution, but Detroit still has lots of sources of, of pollution that our folks are working on. Um, but those are those were, uh, we have, we have added, added up 30,000 lives saved over a decade, 30,000 mm. lives saved that weren't dying from that pollution. And it doesn't solve the whole problem, but it's very real and it's very tangible. And, and that a lot of those lives saved were in communities of color, not exclusively. Um, but when I think about, you know, being liberated from that pollution to live the full potential of your life, um, I think that there's a uh, a whole lot more work to do, but it, it has been an important contribution to that and, and an important contribution to tackling the climate crisis because we have two thirds of these coal plants that were our biggest contributors to climate change that are now not bellowing all that carbon dioxide into the air ever again. So, Well, let's, let, let's talk about that a little bit. Actually, I remember when you were, I, when, when the, one of the times I saw you, uh, this is way back in the day, not way back in the day, this is a little bit of time ago, but you were in the film Year of Living Dangerously. Uh, and I was like, oh, go ahead, Mary. Look at, look at, you know, go ahead. She was, was in there. It was making it happen. And so one of the things there I want to bring up is the Beyond Cold campaign. For those who don't know that campaign, um, let's, let's kind of walk through that. And let me actually give the folks who don't know a little background. So, when George W. Bush was in office, he he literally was putting out to create, help create a number of coal-fired power plants. And then um, the Beyond Coal campaign kind of comes in. This is, I'm speeding through history here, but they get, I want to get to 2010. 2010 is an important year for the Beyond Coal campaign and for our climate movement. Because it's also the year of the Markey Waxman bill. And, I, and so those two things are happening. But the Beyond Coal campaign actually is a great thing from 2010, because since that time they created a plan to say that listen, we're going to be, we're going to be, we're going to get rid of all the coal fire power plants by 2030. And so let's walk through how now, because now you're at 2021, um, you're, we have about we have about nine years left <laughs> to, to get rid of. Uh, we had a little speed bump in the last administration, so I don't know if that slows you down a little bit or nothing. But we want to we want to talk about. Uh, when you the history of when it first started, and then and then where you are now, um, what what resource I saw that uh, Bloomberg actually put out a um, a toolkit to track. Uh, we could talk about that a little bit, and then do you think by twenty thirty you'll get there? Well, you you 
to hit the nail on the head, 2010 was a, was a critical year. Up to that point, we had been fighting these new coal plants all around the country. There were 200 plus on the drawing board and this network of groups stopped 200 of them from being built. And had they been built, it would have been game over for the climate. And there wouldn't have been this opening for clean energy that we now have growing like crazy all over the country. And we learned a lot in that process about how decisions get made about coal plants, about clean energy, about gas plants. And uh, that happens mostly at the state and local level. There is some federal work to do things like require mercury controls, um, but a lot of it is at the state and local level. And so in 2010, that was the year we really started taking a hard look at these 530 existing coal plants all around the United States. And could we actually launch a campaign to over the decade, get them slated for retirement? And I will tell you, it, it has been an amazing experience because it's been really driven by grassroots folks. You know, yes, there have been some lawyers and yes, there have been some experts, but by and large, it's regular grassroots folks in their community who, you know, some of these were right in the middle of cities like Baltimore and Chicago, uh, really very awful polluting coal plants that were making people sick that folks just had... Uh, hadn't ever really been able to find a way to get at them, to get them to deal with their pollution. And we were able to provide some resources. People were able to learn from each other, share their ideas and their strategies about what was working. And we now have two thirds of the coal plants in the United States announced to retire or retired. Mm -hmm. uh, we were getting half of our electricity from coal in 2010, this year, we're gonna get probably 20% of our electricity from coal. And this year, we're actually likely to get more electricity from renewable energy than from coal for the first time ever in the United States. And we, I am confident that by 2030, we will have moved beyond coal in the United States because a couple of things, one is that coal is actually now more expensive than clean energy. So if you're somebody who's looking to make electricity or buy electricity, clean energy just makes more economic sense. Uh, but we also now have really connected the dots around climate change and around public health and pollution. And so you have the choice between clean and cheap energy or dirty and expensive energy. And I think people are going to choose the clean and cheap energy every time. No, that's great. And, and how much do you think market forces had a play on that? I know of gas and, and fracking. Do you think they had any play with the dismantling of coal? Or do you think that this was just, it was just time and this, I love the people power aspect, obviously, for that as well. Well, you know, market forces are obviously part of it. But I think when you're an activist, you're always working within some kind of system where economics are part of the system, like no matter what you work on, I think whether it's criminal justice or whether it's like women's issues, whatever it is, I think economics are always at play. And as activists, understanding the economic sort of mechanism behind the scenes and trying to figure out like who's, who is making money off of the way the system works and how do we kind of interrupt that? Because um, that's, that's uh, I think as an activist, there's always a place to be creative and innovative when you kind of figure out how the money works behind a bad system. And so when we started doing this work, um, clean energy was not as competitive, but that was partly because all the coal pollution was not being cleaned up. And so they got to 
pollute all their mercury for free and their carbon pollution for free and dump all their coal ash and the holes in the ground and pollute the water. So they didn't have to pay for any of that pollution. Then coal was looked cheap, but we were paying the price. We were paying the price with our health. We were paying the price with our, you know, the communities that were polluted. And so it looked cheap, but it was actually people who were paying the price. And when we got some of that pollution under control, and there are also some, you know, advancements in clean energy technology. Then all of a sudden, clean energy was economically a lot more competitive. And uh, and so, you know, when coal was the cheapest form of electricity on the market, we really worked on closing those loopholes. And then over time, as clean energy became uh, cheaper, then we tried to make the case that, hey, you shouldn't keep running this coal plant. Clean energy is cheaper. And if, yes, the cheap uh, fracked gas definitely was a factor, um, but we all know that all the pollution from gas, from fracking, from it, the methane that comes out of gas being a big climate uh, pollutant. And so um, I think that same reckoning is now coming for gas, where clean energy is now cheaper than gas and hard, it's harder for gas to compete. Um, and as activists, again, we need to kind of use that to our advantage and try to get get do to gas what we have done to coal and, and move the move the country beyond gas because of all the harm it's causing. Mm. I love it. I love it. Well, I, I, that's why I love the whole beyond carbon and, and beyond coal and the whole piece. Let's, let's take them all down. I, I, I've said this numerous times that organized people beats organized money every single time. So I, I love that approach. And I believe that is the case. Uh, Let's go over the pond now, and let's go a little bit internationally. We know COP26 is, is happening. It was canceled last year due to COVID, and we'll be, we'll be back this year. And people are excited about that for a number of reasons. One, um, uh, the IPCC report, as you see my hat, we're down to about nine years now. So time is, time is clicking. Uh, but also, uh, one of the first things that President Biden and VP Harris did was rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, which was super exciting. So, one, uh, what are your thoughts on the connection here? Are you what, what are you what are you thinking about in regards for the IPCC and and COP twenty six in regards to coal, particularly coal? Let's go a little bit over to the world because one of the things people are saying in regards to coal is that we are having great success a lot due to you and the Beyond Coal and all the great activists who are working on that. But also there is coal in China and India. And how does that play into this conversation? And how does that work? We also know that the Beyond Coal and other campaigns are also working on that as well. We are. And you mentioned earlier, Bloomberg Philanthropies just launched a international coal kind of countdown uh, tool. And so you can find that and you can see how many coal plants there actually are all around the world and the work that we need to do to get them phased out. The IPCC has said the developed world uh, needs to phase out all coal by 2030 and the rest of the world needs to be well on its way by then. And we, I was one of the most uh, humbling and cool experiences of my life was, has been to see other countries launch their own Beyond Coal campaigns. So there is a Beyond Coal Europe that launched a few, I think 2017, and they are uh, well on track to achieve, they have about the same amount of coal online in Europe as we do in the United States. And they're 
on track to achieve the similar goals of getting all the coal phased out by the time the IPC set, IPCC says we need to of 2030. There's also Beyond Coal campaigns in South Korea, Japan, and Australia. And then there's a much broader network of coal activists all around the world in Vietnam, in Kenya, in India, in China, in Chile, all around the world, wherever there's coal plants or coal mines, there are South Africa, there's activists who are working, sometimes risking their lives uh, to challenge the pollution and to try to move their countries to clean energy. And so it is a global movement full of some of the most inspiring people you could ever hope to meet, some incredible movement leaders, some incredibly brave people. And I think a big theme of this COP that is coming up is going to be this global exit from coal because we have all this momentum in the United States. I mean, even under Trump, 2020 was our biggest year ever for coal retirements. Wow. In the even, so, even up there with 2015? Yes, it was. It was. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so even under Trump, we kept marching along and making progress. And similarly in Europe, they've been marching along making progress. There's a few places where they're trying to build new coal plants, which is uh, always a threat. Um, but again, the economics increasingly look worse and worse for coal as the economics of clean energy get better. Why would you want to build? I can imagine that from an economic standpoint, building even the, the rationale to building a, a new coal, coal plant. Know. They should That's really like listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> they should really listen to me. Let me tell you, you should not build a new coal plant anywhere in the world in 2021. You will regret it. You will be stuck with the dinosaur uh, five years from now. That's really expensive and no one's going to Literally work. stuck with the dinosaur. The fossil fuels, literally. <laughs> literally. A literal <laughs> and economic dinosaur. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I think this, this shift away from coal is going to be a, a big theme of the international climate talks as we go into this year, because it's one of the places where, you know, your nine years hat says it all. You know, we have this window of time to make progress on a big scale and phasing out coal is one of the one of the most clear pathways to make the progress that we need and the time that we need. And it's cloud, obviously doesn't cover everything, um, but it will get us a long way towards where we need to be. Hmm. Well, I have a couple more questions for you. And I was thanking for your time. This, I'm just so happy to have this time with you. This actually makes my day. Uh, uh, when you think about where we are with now with this new administration, um, they're they're in a tough they're in a tough spot. They're in a tough spot to get done what needs to get get done. Are you are you hopeful when you think about the possibilities with the Biden Harris administration and all they have to do in this short amount of time? I am very hopeful uh, for a couple of reasons. One is because they have so they brought so many people into that administration who know what needs to be done and have these brilliant ideas that are both visionary and practical and just that can get us there. So I think they've assembled a dream team of folks. I think they also you were we were talking earlier about this reckoning around environmental justice and i think when you look at the kind of folks that they've brought into the administration they've brought environmental justice leaders into very senior positions in the administration i i think that that's another signal of this sea change that we may not see the kind of same old climate solutions but we might really see solutions and policies that really put people first and um and i'm optimistic because uh 
the reality of climate change is landing on people's doorsteps, whether it's the Texas blackouts or the California wildfires or all the hurricanes we had last year. It's getting harder for your average person to ignore climate change. And I think folks are starting to realize this is not just going to affect their grandchildren and polar bears, that this is going to affect the safety of their kids and their families today. And so I do think that this is one of those rare moments where we could actually get something very big done. And I think we have the leadership and the, the folks in place to do it. And I think for those of us who are not in the administration out here on the outside, we've got to raise our voices as loud as we can and just not stop beating this drum that people want action. People want real progress. It needs to happen now. And you've got folks out there like the Sunrise Movement and others who are really the, the passion of young people right now is something that lifts me up every day. And I think also makes me very hopeful because they're not going to, they're not going to let up. <laughs> they're not going to let up on the Biden administration. They want action and they want, they want to see big things happen. So, so I'm optimistic for, for a lot of reasons. Is there anything that I miss? I know you, uh, you and the work you do and all you do with what you do individually, but also with Sierra club, it's something that you want to, you have as hot on the stove. You want to make sure that the people know about that you want to bring into the conversation? Well, you know, in addition to all this great work um, that we have and all the progress that we've made around coal, I think there is a really big opportunity in front of us on gas, you know, natural gas as the industry likes to call it or fracked gas or fossil gas as maybe should be more accurately called. And that's mainly used in three places. It's about a third in for electricity, a third in buildings and a third in industry. And I and then there's big plans right now on the drawing board to export a lot of this gas, to build these 21 new gas export facilities all around the country that would send that gas uh, all around the world. And so I think we have a similar window now with gas that we did with coal in the last decade to uh, make sure we don't build our uh, electricity grid on gas to start getting gas out of our buildings because it's very polluting. Believe it or not, you're, a gas stove creates levels of indoor air pollution that would be illegal outdoors. Wow. And especially, again, in communities of color and low-income communities, a real public health problem that I don't think is getting enough attention. So getting that gas out of our buildings and electrifying them is important. Um, and then stopping all those gas export terminals from being built. So there's a there's a next chapter here of work to do that is going to require a new new generation of leaders and and lots of lots of energy and lots of good ideas that I think again clears the way for more environmental justice, more clean energy, more new economic opportunities, and and more of a fighting chance for our climate. Oh, Marianne, hit if folks want to get in. I actually I have one question. I'm actually this one first because this one after my next question it might it might tear it down. So I don't want to I don't want us to lose focus here. So so uh, uh, if folks want to get in contact with you or the Beyond Coal campaign, how do they do that? Well, I am at Marianne Hit everywhere, Twitter, etc. So at M A R Y A N N E H I T T. Um, and then you can find the Sierra Club and the Beyond Coal campaign with a little little Googling and uh, happy to have more folks involved in joining with us. And again, 300 partner organizations in this work. Uh, there's lots of great, great organizations, big and small out there that if uh, can use your voice wherever you are. Uh, thank you so much. Well, this wouldn't be the coolest show. Uh, not we think it's the craziest show, but it's the coolest show. Sometimes we, if we wouldn't, you know, we, I have my last one here is a Dolly Parton. 
Dolly has been doing some great things, and y'all, y'all can look up everything down. Dolly with the statues said she don't want the statue because everything else is happening, and just all the things she's been doing around getting the getting her vaccine and COVID. So look up Dolly, all she's doing. But right now, I I gotta bring this up because Mary mentioned she does karaoke. So I got up here on my screen nine to five. <laughs> so we go we gonna have a little bit of karaoke. I, I, I'm gonna go with you now. I, I, I'm gonna take the plunge. So I, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna send the chorus here nine to five. You can jump in. Do you know the the actual verse? Okay, I'm put- I'm looking. I'm doing a little googling here so that I yeah yeah pull up the verse so you, you can so see the have verse. Stage fright. I can only have stage fright on the coolest show. No okay. no no. You ain't no stage fright. <laughs> no, we gonna we gonna we gonna we gonna hook you right now. We gonna. I'm ready. You, this could be your moment here. You might be. Able to, Blow up here, Mary, and be able to fund the movement. You know, we see what happens. No, I'm full of surprises. <laughs> we'll see. So we we we're gonna do the chorus, and then we're gonna go into the verse. You ready? You got that? Uh huh. Okay. So uh, we uh, start with working nine to five. Yeah, yeah. So we're working nine to five. You, you, you and I'll join you. So you, you, you kick it in, and I'll join you. So I'll, I'll be your little, little baritone. Hook I'm here for it. <laughs> All right. We're working. Ready? Yep. Okay, let's, let's go. I'll follow you here, Mary. Okay, let's go. All right. We're working nine to five. What a way, a way to make a living. Barely getting by. No, no giving. They just use your mind. They never give you credit. Enough to drive you crazy if you let it. And I stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition, and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. All right, now. In the shower and the blood starts pumping, out on the street the traffic starts jumping with folks like me on the job from nine to five. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. What a way to make, make a, living. a living, barely getting by. It's, it's all taken, no, no giving. They just use your mind. They never, never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. Nine to five. <laughs> hey. There you go. Oh, man. Thank you so much. Oh man, that made my day. Thank you Mine so too. much. That was so my much. My sister. Thank <laughs> you, you for being here. Uh, that is Marianne Hitt, the director <laughs> of the Beyond Cold campaign with uh Sierra Club and my dear friend and and who I admire so much. Thank you, Mary, for being here with me on the coolest show. Well, I admire you right back. Thank you, Rev. Thank you for having me. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know.